All right, and welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. And before we begin today, and I introduce our guest for episode seven, I want to share with you the intentions um, that I've come up with for why I started this podcast. Our community matters to me, and I love you all, and I love us. So the intentions, which are organic and can change along the way, are number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or have practiced or taught Kundalini Yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from our community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying gaslighting or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural misappropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and lightwashing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor every body that has come through our community, both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, process their own emotions, get somatic therapy and other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions and be critical thinkers rather than just blindly follow anyone. Your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and support you. So I want to welcome our guest for today. His name is Hargobin Kalsa. He was born in Baltimore, Maryland, in the ashram in 1988. His family moved to the Herndon ashram when he was four. He attended school in India for 10 years. When he, uh, then he worked as the assistant to the principal at Midi Pity Academy from 2006 to 2010. For the past few years, he's lived in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Guru Surya, and their dog, Remy. He works in construction and spends his free time making woodworking projects, biking, playing basketball, and the Indian drum called the tabla. Well, I want to welcome you, Hargavan. Thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Actually, I have you on mute. Let's unmute you. Hi, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, why do you Why do you feel it's important to um, share your story? Um, well, 
after listening to Durham's last week um, and speaking with him about it, um, it felt like an important, um, it was important to me to participate in the conversation regardless of how important I feel my story is directly to the, to the topic. And though I had known his story, he's my best friend, hearing it through this medium gave me the context to, to actually listen to it in a new light. Mm. I really valued that. Mm. I really value that perspective. Um, and you're sharing that because a part of creating this platform is that we all, that we open up the space to know that we all have a story and an experience and it's not a hierarchy of pain or abuse or, well, I didn't experience as worse as that. It's, we all have an experience and our lived experience matters and our lens is unique and that might support somebody else in their own awakening. Exactly. I think more context can only help. Yeah. Well, yes, thank you. Um, and on that note, why don't you bring us back? Give us some, um, I know you, in the intro, it said where you were born, but I didn't get some sense of like when you went to India. So give us a little history of kind of the start and, and where you want to begin. Sure. Yeah. So um, I was born in 1988. And I guess the start of my life was my name being given to me from uh, Yogi Bhajan. And my brother has the same name as me and he's three years older than me. And so he had been named three years earlier and I was born and my parents called him up as they did back then and asked him, um, so we just had a baby, can we have a name? And he said Hargobind and they kind of took that, hung up and then thought about it a little bit and called him back and asked, so just to clarify, we already have one is that our, do they both have the same name? And he said, yes, that's, that's all that I can say is that's their name. And that made it kind of confusing. So we have our nicknames and our, um, so I go by Gobind often, or as I got my, my nickname in India, little dude. <laughs> all right. Um, so in that ashram, I don't remember a whole lot cause I was from ages one to three. And there was a few other families there. And I think some families had moved away by, by 1992. And my family being the last ones there sort of heard about the ashram that was more growing in Herndon and moved, moved out there. And um, my brother and I started school there with kind of in a public school. And there was probably uh, 10 or 12 families in a, in a cul-de-sac there. So we had, we had friends that were, that were all Sikhs and we all lived in this insular um, neighborhood. And I have, I have good memories of it. I have um, a lot of times we would go, each house would have chanting. And so we would do chanting each night and go to the, you know, it would rotate which house had the, evenings chanting and always having that smell of yogi tea and and cookies and um yeah I, I don't have a whole lot of memories from that time but we would we would interact with with the uh with the community and not so much I think I wasn't 
old enough that I, I had like a lot of friends outside of the community. But as I went to India in later years, the my peers who stayed in America longer than I did, did form some friends. So it did interact a bit more than maybe the Espanola ashram or the Los Angeles ashram. It did interact with with people who were not part of our community a bit more from my understanding. Yeah. Uh, so my, my experience was that I saw that some of the kids were going to India. I think I was only five or six and my brother and my parents sort of saw that that was the thing to do. And so he went when he was 10, I believe, and I was only seven. And as soon as I saw him get on the plane and fly, I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> I really want to do that. And I didn't think about it because it's when you're seven years old, you don't think mm -hmm. uh, what that means. So then I don't remember that that year we did go and visit him in India, my father and I, and I I had no context for, I just thought, oh, these kids are great. You know, it's like, it's all great. Um, you know, This is like 1992. This is the last year of the Sant Singh Sukha Singh School. Yeah. Sorry, uh, 95, 94 to 95. And I visited and it just reinforced my idea. Like I got to come here and go to school here. It looks like a blast. Um, I did hear that my, my brother had been uh, assaulted by one of the staff members while I was in America. But at a seven-year-old mind, I don't hear what that means. And it wasn't, I mean, he had been physically abused by by a staff in front of the, the entire school body. Um, and it was, I, my parents were on the phone about it with, with the staff in India. And I just sort of, I didn't process it or think about what that meant. Um, and it probably wasn't just him, you know, I think it happened more commonly to other students and um, the staff member that did it was in his twenties, you know, and I don't think he had training for how to deal with kids. I don't think a lot of the, the staff that went there had any uh, child development instruction or, or um, education in that. So that was my, my introduction to how, you know, I had this one idea where it's, it's beautiful and exciting and you're in India. And then I had this other piece in the back of my mind where it's like, Oh, some bad stuff happens. Yeah. So I, I still followed along with my, my desire to go. And I went when I was eight years old. And that was the year that um, Dudham in his podcast, in his interview with you, um, recounted a little bit of the, the lack of control, the lack of organization that existed that year. And, and it's similar to what I've heard from people in one of the years at GNFC back in the day yeah. where we just had houses around town and then a school building that was kind of semi under construction as we were in the building in school there. And I, I second everything Dudham said on his interview where we were, we were just free to do whatever we felt like doing at any time of the day. And we really did it. And again, it's a miracle that nothing um, beyond, you know, minor injuries. Uh, uh, one major injury was to an older student named Hargobind also. <laughs> Whoa. Which Dudham described as well in his interview that he got knocked out from a, climbing on top of a bus, which we did every day, uh, pretty much. 
So and, that kid who had gotten knocked out and hit his teeth, that his name was Hargovin too. Yeah, and he was my neighbor in Virginia. So <laughs> a lot, a lot of, of Hargovins going around. <laughs> and so your brother, if I understand correctly, had gone to India a few years earlier. It's one year. One year earlier. So you're younger. He went a little earlier. And then he got, you had heard while he is there and you're back in America that he had gotten physically assaulted by a staff member, but you're not fully processing that. You're only processing it on whatever level you're capable of. Um, You still go. And so that first year you go is the time when, what you were talking about when Dudham was explaining there were houses that they were renting. There wasn't an actual like school property where you were living on the property. They were renting separate houses and then you went to a particular school building. Exactly. And in that the beginning, chaotic year that he said was extra chaotic. That was your first year. Yes. That was my introduction to it, which in some ways was like, this is awesome. Like we can just do whatever we want. Well, as a kid, yeah, it's like camp, right? Yeah. I mean, our transportation in the beginning was basically a, a dump truck. And we would, you know, 50 of us would pile into the back of the truck. It wasn't even a bus. And so we'd be transported to and from school in that. And then in, in, towards the later half of the year, we got buses. But to look back on it and realize that my parents may not have been exercising their best judgment. And I didn't, I mean, as a seven-year-old, you don't know what you want. And I was just excited to go to India. But um, what weighs heavily the most on me is that I was, extremely sad when I would leave like I felt that that disconnect and I would cry a lot that I was missing my parents and as soon as I was done feeling that sadness I'd be like okay I'm all good now because that you know the rush of endorphins that comes in when you're feeling sad to make you feel better just happened naturally and I was like I guess that's just part of life I feel really really sad and really awful and then I'm great so that was kind of a theme throughout my first I would say eight or, you know, seven or eight years in India where I just feel this deep sadness of, you know, I, I want to be with my parents, but this is life. I'm going to be with my friends and I'm going to go to India every year. Mm. And I, looking back on that and um, seeing it with hindsight, I, I see that it was just painful and I just let it be, you know, it was just sad. It didn't need to be that way. Um, I don't like that feeling. And I wouldn't, you know, I see that as a, um, you know, my mom tried to sort of ask me, are you sure you want to go back? And I was always saying, yes, I do. I always want to go back. I want to go back every year, even though I had this pit in my stomach of like, I'll miss you. Uh, So that was hard. uh, And yeah. Do you feel like what you're reflecting on is like that you actually that that was a feeling that you actually didn't want to go and that you were thinking you had to go or is it actually like or is it a combination that you liked it and didn't and like it's it, both of those i liked it and i didn't like the feeling of missing my parents and i did feel like i hadn't even considered not going so it was just that as a, such a young kid you're not thinking alternate you know you, you don't have the decision making ability i don't believe that i did to um, to really weigh the options. Um, so yeah, that was, I think you're just pointing out a really important point as a child of the Dharma. You're talking about what, 1995 that you went, 96 that you went. So we're talking about 
how many decades earlier, right? Several decades earlier of generations of, of us children going to school in India. And so it, there's a camaraderie in that. There's a, a bonding in that. There's this ethos of like, that's what we do. And I'm kind of hearing that in you. Um, I didn't go to school in India, but I remember the longing of the fact that, gosh, we were the only kids left behind and the feeling of that, you know, um, I know it weighed heavier on, on my older brother than on me, but anyway, I want to just name that because when we grow up in something, I think sometimes people that don't grow up in our community don't understand the gravity of that longing of the longing of this is what we do. It's a part of being a Kalsa, right? Yeah. And then also the long, the missing of the parents and thinking that, oh, it's okay. Maybe I just shouldn't feel that feeling. Exactly. And I got the sense that I might be one of the only people feeling it, even though I'm sure I was not. Um, mm. I got the sense that, you know, all these other people, like my brother and all my friends sort of, they don't, I don't see them feeling these feelings. So it's just mm. must be me and it'll go away. <laughs> well, I think that actually illuminates a lot too, right? Is that nobody else was showing what they were feeling either. And that became a common thing in our, in, in, in the ethos too, is that we kept our feelings internal because that's yeah. not a thing to share. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Thank you for that. Yeah. I, so I think I would, would say that after that year, um, things started to get a bit more organized after that, my first year in India. And I, um, by the time, I mean, this skips quite a few years, but by the time I was in eighth grade, which is five years into my, my school year there, I, I found that I was really appreciating a few aspects of, of being at the school in India. Um, while I was in India, I was appreciating learning the tabla I was appreciating um, learning Kundalini yoga. And I don't remember any particular subject that I, uh, in school, that I, academics, I, I don't remember feeling like this is my thing. I really like X. Um, so I, I latched on pretty 110% onto yoga, meditation. Uh, the martial art that we did there and tabla so i was much more in the like spiritual life aspect and i think what i what i've looked back on is that gave me some peace of like being able to integrate what these heavy emotions i was feeling um into a a spirituality that i that i wanted to um process my feelings through rather than rather than any other way because that was my main avenue for saying this makes me feel good I can I can do this and um, I did have a bit of a reputation of like being a goody good or you know like people would jokingly say like little dude he's a yogi um, <laughs> and I felt self-conscious about that I felt like that's not I shouldn't I shouldn't feel that because you're supposed to feel humble. You're supposed to feel, <laughs> um, and I, I did feel better then. And I did feel superior because what I was subscribing to was the belief that the more meditation, the more yoga, the more X of this subject that you do, 
the better of a person you are, regardless of anything else that, that the meditation is more important than anything after that. Mm. And so I really, I dove in pretty deep. And by the time I was in, again, this is skipping a few years, but I was in 12th grade. I was, um, I wasn't applying to colleges. I hadn't really pursued any academics in, I, I did fine. I did, I had, you know, a 4.0 or I got straight A's every once in a while. And um, I just, I was way more into the spiritual life. And so um, Jagaguru recognizing that asked, hey, we're looking for more staff. So I was 18 years old and they asked if I wanted to come back and staff member as soon as I, you know, after the summer. And my initial thought was absolutely because I just love this and there's always more I can do. And, and I don't, or I don't have any other option. Um, I didn't think, you know, I want to go to college. And if I did think I wanted to go to college or talk about that with my parents, I thought I can do that after, you know, I can do this a little bit and I can always do school later, but this is the most important thing to me. Mm-hmm. And so I came back in my, my one condition, cause I had seen, um, I had seen some of my older older students come back and jump right in from, from being a student to being a staff member. And it's not a quick or easy transition if you are placed in the, in the role of caretaker, let alone, you know, not having training in it. Um, I just, I could see that as a student that someone would come back and you're immediately supposed to be taking care of these kids and, and looking after them. Um, and that's not an easy transition. So I, I made that a point that I didn't want to be in that position. I was, I was just the assistant to Jagaguru. And I would, I would lead uh, physical, uh, physical fitness, like PT in the morning and gutka classes. And I would take care of the Gurdwara. And those were just, those were basic duties that I would, um, and at the same time, I would teach yoga frequently. And sometimes during the academic day, they would have the the humanology classes. Mm-hmm. I definitely, um, I again just dove even deeper into it, and I, um, I feel like I was being, uh, I was forming more of a philosophy for life that everything was funneled through my, my belief that there were, you know, seven steps to happiness. That there were these specific teachings that I, I just. I don't know how to emphasize this. I know I'm saying it many, many times, but <laughs> that I was, I was definitely um, just trying to build myself up with that foundation, with the foundation of you, you do exactly how this, how Harbhajan laid everything out. And um, I, I was enjoying myself in it. I was feeling that I was, you know, improving, whatever that meant. <laughs> and um, my, my relationship with, with Jugget was, was positive And I felt that, that, um, he was a mentor to me and what I was learning from him was, was how to conduct myself as a, as a spiritual person and, and how to, um, practice Harbhajan's teachings better. Uh-huh. So, um, that lasted for four years and, by the fourth year, I would say 
I felt the stories I was hearing, whether it was from Jugget or any staff members or teachers who would come and teach were, were very repetitive. Um, there was no spontaneity or like new language coming forth. I don't know how to like in the stories they're talking about like in the yogic language and the spiritual philosophies you're saying nothing it's just like regurgitated there's not new inspiration and stories coming from their lives exactly okay. and i i it didn't discount like i still felt 110 percent uh gung-ho that this was you know the best thing that a person could do this was the life and i had just that thing in the back of my head of like well i've heard that story 25 times and I've heard that perspective 50 times and I've heard that and I um, at the same time uh, my wife my now wife was in America she had graduated years before and we were doing a long distance relationship and I I wanted to pursue that relationship so part of what was pulling me to leave the school was wanting to be with her because um, it was either I stay at the school and we're not together or I move back to America. And so that was a, there was two aspects to it. There was the like, do I wanna make this living at the school my whole life and teaching and move forward with this when something in the back of my head told me like, I don't know what the rest, you know, is, is this just it? Am I just gonna do this or, um, do I want to move back to America? And I didn't want to move back to America. I wanted to, to stay and, and just stay where I was. I knew what life was like and I knew what was comfortable. And um, I had a conversation with Jugget where I told him, I'm, I'm thinking of moving back. I'm not going to come back next year. And he, he was very understanding of it. There wasn't, there wasn't a, a hint of resentment. There wasn't, um, he just said, like, well, we were going to put you into the Mukia Jatadar um, position where you would be directly in charge of kids. And I was like, well, I'm glad that I'm leaving <laughs> because <laughs> I would probably be horrible. <laughs> um, and so I moved back and um, I had I had a sense that I wanted to you know, continue this lifestyle of, of teaching yoga, of, of living the same way that I lived in India, but in America. And very quickly, I mean, over the next couple of years, I realized that was not possible. Um, the school where I was for 14 years of my life at MPA was this insular um, bubble where the reason that I had the practice and lifestyle that I had was because it was all that was happening. Uh. It wasn't what I believe now to be disciplined because there wasn't a, a choice of, well, do I do this or do I do that? And how do I sort out my priorities? It was 100% focused towards the schedule. And I, I craved that. I loved that schedule. And I loved that um, structure that kept me, you know, in line and, if I just do this and then I do that and then this happens. Um, and so in America, I felt that it was, that structure was completely lacking. And I did continue practicing my yoga and my meditation um, with 
with the knowledge that it was it was different and i again go back to the mindset that i still struggled with which was the more meditation and yoga you do the better of a person you are regardless of of what else you're doing uh. and um i think that was the that was the part that I, I struggled with the most in America was I don't like doing this without that structure. I don't like doing the yoga. I don't like doing the meditation without this, you know, the student body and all the staffs there of, it felt like a lot promoting more of it. Um, so I think what I was getting at was that it was more of that sense of, I was, held in that and it wasn't necessarily me i was just held in that flow of schedule and so without that i was redefining or refiguring out how i do that and create that for myself while fitting things that i had never had to do into my life doing laundry cooking my own meals cleaning up after myself doing things that you know when i worked at the school in india we had um, people cleaning the facilities everything and the we had the dining hall where food was always ready. We had this structure around us that you didn't have to think about what you were going to do or how you were going to make it. Um, so uh, that's... It, it sounds like the transition back to America was really challenging because it was a 14-year segment of your life and really... Sorry. It's okay. From a very young age to, you know, a young adult... And then you're suddenly in America. And, and what I'm hearing you say is that some of these choices, you realize, wow, that wasn't actually my discipline. It was an environment that was supporting me to be an, a disciplined yogi and, and, and show up for myself in these ways. But when you had to introduce all the other things that life really entails, mm -hmm. that was a more, more of a challenge. You didn't necessarily have that those tools available to you or you didn't even want to use the tools that you thought you wanted to use? Yeah. I mean, I, again, it goes back to the, the superiority complex, which I think I had made for myself where we, I looked down upon anyone who didn't practice the same way we did in, in India. And that included 3HO, you know, Americans. <laughs> so I want to just put a flag in that and say, by no means did you create that for yourself. I, I can understand why you put it on yourself because I also similarly have put that on myself, right? But that's so much a part of what we grew up in. We grew up in this kind of veil of unconscious superiority complex around we have this special knowledge, right? We have this special technology. This technology is just going to change the world. And the way that it actually lands in each one of us, I think, can show up differently, but it's personalized. And we think, oh, I did that, when really it was an ethos that impacted us. I believe that 100%. I read a book recently called Upstream, and its, its philosophy is a system results in exactly what it is designed to create. There's no like, oh, the system is broken, we need to fix it. Whatever comes out of it, that was what was designed for it to create. And it may be good or bad and whatever it creates is, there's 
there's actors who can do different things within that system, but you can't say the system is broken because it produced something and that is exactly how it was designed. And so when I, exactly what you're saying, when I look at what was produced in my mind or my philosophy was, was a result of my environment. And I think a very intentional choice for the school to put a focus on that over many years, that wasn't necessarily the previous year's focuses, right? As we're mm -hmm. hearing tales and there was a time when it got more structured and mm -hmm. the structure actually was the body of work that we're gonna integrate Kundalini yoga, right? And so by the time kids graduate, they're gonna be certified as teachers and we're gonna integrate other levels of kind of like discipline. And, and I don't know, I'd like to hear it because you were a staff. But looking from the outside in, I started teaching at the yoga festival, European yoga festival in like 2016, 17. And I have to be honest, I was really impressed when they did the midi pity announcement and the, they had the kids come out and they did the, you know, the, their bhangra moves and, and, and they're, you know, they're just regal and beautiful and radiant. And, and it, it was so symbolic of what I felt was the training I remember getting grown up in. Yeah. And here it is in 2016, 17, 18, being shown as like a marketing tool to kind of like, this is why you want to send your children to the school because your children will come out as radiant, strong souls ready to face the Aquarian transition. And we know we have the tools that's going to change the world, right? And yeah. so I'm hearing this in your story almost and almost with a deep level of sadness behind it. Like you got wrapped up and you realize, wow, I was actually doing that as a way to manage a lot of emotions that I've been feeling since seven and didn't know how to actually feel because I didn't know how to help, get a help to feel. Yeah, the, the catch 22 of it to me is that meditation is a good thing. <laughs> and in concert with other things like going to therapy, which I am doing, and using different tools at your disposal. Um, it, is, it is possible to practice meditation in a bad way, which, which can create, yeah, all further neuroses. Um, but exactly- Such a good point, such a good point. Oh, and I think that it's worthy of noting that many of us that grew up in this Dharma, whether it's meditation or yoga or any, any realm of, of that, we might have an association that was actually trained in a negative association or a trauma response consciously or unconsciously. And we can use that. It can show up as over-discipline. That's how it showed up in my life. Mm -hmm. Over-disciplined, over-cultivated in my navel center, in my mm -hmm. will, kind of like a shutdown of my emotional body and an overdevelopment of my navel point is how mm -hmm. it, I noticed it. Mm-hmm. And I say that because somebody, most people in the world that I teach aren't overdeveloped in their navel point. They're underdeveloped. So a lot of the tools that I know to strengthen that area are wonderful tools, but any tool could be used too much. And then it's a weapon of destruction or of trauma. So like a hammer is a tool, but it can also be used to kill or to abuse similar to the way I think maybe we might be relating to meditation or yoga or things that are very rich, but also we could have used to shield our emotions because we didn't get support to feel all that. 
absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I want you to go there with me because um, you ran through some years. Yeah. But going there at seven, some part of you arrived and realized, holy smokes, now I know what my brother, you know, I, something, you know, like give us more of a sense of like, what was it like for you as a child? Because I'm hearing the resilience. I'm hearing how our Dharma supported you, quote, right? To not feel, but to use yoga and meditation as a way to really create. What it sounds like is when you started practicing Kundalini yoga meditation, really hardcore, that was your first sense of support. It was the first place you got to go and feel supported. And that was inside of you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I still look back on that as if it wasn't going to be that it could have been any number of other things. Um, and I'm redefining how to practice that now, because like I said, the yoga and the meditation of it are not, they're not implicitly bad. It's the associations with them or the parts of them that are, like you said, overdeveloped to compensate for things that you are not addressing that bring us away from ourselves. So I feel like brought me away from myself. And me too. Me too. I think, and the more we share the, our story, we realize, wow, yeah, I wasn't allowed to feel that either. What did I do instead? Mm -hmm. What did I do to, you know? Yeah. I want to explore that too with, with the understanding that the, the aspects that I experienced of the positivity from things like, I mean, when I would get into my, my tabla or, or practicing my martial art, um, there aren't necessarily any negative associations with those things because I played tabla and I would feel such a deep sense of, of ecstasy that would bleed into other parts of my life where if I'm struggling or if I'm missing my parents or if I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with my life, these, these practices were, were unstructured and were just done from joy and that they, they brought that. Um, I just feel like it was expressed so purely from me. Mm. Mm. Without right. needing to be told, like, this is how you do it. This is how you should feel when you do it. This is, you know, it was unstructured. And I found my, my expression with those things. Do you feel like that wasn't the same, say, in your practice with Kundalini Yoga? Because there was more definition to it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I I, uh, I remember one particular time playing tabla, and I it was about one in the one or two in the morning because we were doing a a program early early, and I played and I just felt like I was on top of the world, and then I had to take a nap afterwards because I had only slept from 10 p.m. till 1 a.m. And then I woke up and I felt like what I believe the opposite of a hangover to be where I was like still floating and it wasn't from anything in, in particular. And I didn't have to rely on what other people said about what it was to, to tell me that it was good for me. Mm. Um, mm. And again, there's that, 
there's that uh, judgment I place on myself for not wanting to feel too um, superior then, you know, and feeling these, um, these expressions of like, I felt this high, high ecstasy. Um, I think I would genu generally attach a feeling of, well, nobody else can experience this, so I must be special. And that again runs back to the theme of um, we're giving you this technology, what we were taught as students to save the world. And I've grown, like I, like I expressed some of the reason why I felt it was healthy to leave the school was I now have this deep appreciation for explaining things in new language because I heard things explained with the same language for years. Mm. And it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be any specific way of saying something you can say it. And the more you can say it with your own words, the more you can identify it as something coming from you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Meaning you're not just taking it as is you're taking it, you're interpreting through the lens of the experience of your own soul's experience, your lived experience, and then adding yeah. your, your piece to it as it goes back out into the world. Exactly. And I think because I, I held so deeply onto the structure of these are the seven steps for happiness. They have to be spoken in this way. These are the rules for life. They have to be, you know, repeated just like this, because this is the teachings. Mm. Don't change them. It has to be just like this, right? Exactly. And there's a, there's a serious part of me. And I recognize that. And when I speak to, to peers, I explore it of, why, you know, why does it have to be so, why can't it change? Why does it have to be exactly as it was taught? Um, that's a, that's a lifelong process. <laughs> yeah, good inquiry. Um, so you're asking these questions of yourself and noticing these kind of this level of inquiry when you're a staff member at Midi Pity. And, you know, I'm assuming that as a kid going through you, you had some levels of abuse or witness abuse, or there was just a constant culture of abuse and you're kind of brushing through it like it's no big deal or like we've all heard it already. But I just want to say that we haven't, like we don't really have a sense of what I think okay. is like a sense of normal for you a bit. Okay. It, it helps us to kind of get that context mm -hmm. so that we know the headspace of what you went in as a staff yeah. member. Cause you were very clear. I'm not going to be in that role over kids because I don't want to end up in some cycle. Mm -hmm. The things that come to mind um, and the reason I felt also compelled again, starting from why I want to share my story was the things that come to mind are, are things that Dudham covered and I want to cover again, like you're saying is when I first went, my introduction was, you know, regularly being woken up from my sleep with, um, I mean, someone peeing on me to put it bluntly, or waking up and having toothpaste smeared on some part of my clothes and not knowing who did it or why they did it. And um, not telling anyone about it because who am I gonna tell? And not asking like, who was that? Or, or digging into it to try to figure out who did it because it would just invite more um yeah and just the constancy of that i don't remember it as constant 
um, I remember it as isolated incidents. Um, but someone said something really, uh, it super resonated with me um, on one of the first Zoom calls when all this was starting. I forget who said it. I wish I could remember. They said, whether it happened to you, whether you did it to somebody or whether you saw it happen, it's all in your mind as pain being caused to somebody that, how do they say it? Pain being caused to somebody that didn't have to be caused. And, and you knew that somewhere. Yeah. And it doesn't just register in our mind, our nervous systems hold it. Yeah. Our memory holds it. Hearing the stories on Zoom for me and not having gone to India, but having gone to solstice and ladies camp and feeling like I had the camaraderie of, of my peers through the camps and the tantrics. Mm -hmm. um, it was amazing to me how much the stories, like the memory was in my body when I heard people's stories of that, like, if it didn't happen to you, it happened around you, it happened, you know, it happened to each other. And it reminds me of like the same reason why as the teachings, why we play mantra in the room. We play mm -hmm. it because it's a permeating sound current that we're absorbing all the time through our cellular consciousness, right? Yeah. And this is the, this is the weight of what I'm feeling and what you're sharing is like, it just absorbed in the atmosphere. And by the time there was more structure, it's like you slurped into it. Like, I'm going to become a, I'm going to focus on yoga. If this is the answer and these are the teachings, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Yep. I would say that's, that's, uh, that's how I think of it now. Um, the abuse parts, the reason I'm saying that they, they feel like isolated incidents is that, um, and when we all get together, different groups of us talk about, yeah, this happened, that happened, and our memories of it. Um, we kind of isolate these incidents in our, in our minds, I think, to, to provide like, this story is there and to give it concrete, um, a way to process it. But it's sort of just picking and choosing which stories and not the, the overall feeling, which I think I really honestly don't remember the overall feeling if it was this constant state of fear. I don't believe that I felt always afraid that the next, you know, blow would fall. Um, I may have felt that way, but that's the thing about memory. <laughs> it's very tricky. And I think also that we have to understand that fear, if we like context it, fear is a real base emotion. It's a survival emotion. So it's an animal instinct and it's like a primal emotion. So it's not necessarily one like, oh my gosh, I'm conscious that I'm afraid. It's more just, it becomes a, a part of the hypervigilance of being in our body. Yeah. And with the amount of kind of like the constancy of like, of just chaos and commotion, that's just, that's base survival, you mm -hmm. know? And, and then thinking there might be attacks and all the other ice, I think those kind of might 
have been like large things that stand out, but they're because there's like a constancy of like survival mode. Yeah. And what stands out the most to me is what I shared about constantly being afraid that I won't see my parents again. You know, it's nine months at a time. Wow. So you remember feeling that feeling of like, I'm not sure if I'll ever feel, see them again. Like, wow. Now where's your older brother? He's in school with you this whole time. Yeah. He's three years older than me. So he graduated maybe four years. He graduated four years before I did. And he went back to the States and, um, yeah, to share a little bit about that. He had a psychotic break when he was 22, I want to say. Maybe he was 21. And he's dealt with bipolar for the last, I want to say, what was I? 15 years almost. Mm-hmm. And at the time that he first had his episode, he was reading from the City Good Grunt side. Take your time. So that was hard (laughs) to say it lightly. I was a staff member when I heard, I was all, I was in India and I think I, it really shook me to my core that that can happen even while he's, you know, supposed to be held in this light of. Mm -hmm. If he was reading from the Guru and it happened, then, you know, maybe none of us are protected. (laughs) Mm. Kind of like piercing piercing myths a little bit in your own consciousness around what's possible, how, what, how we're protected, how we're, how yeah. our relationship is. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, I didn't think I would talk about that. <laughs> So moving forward with, with him dealing with that and me, um, again, me being so all the way around the world. Yeah, totally incapable of doing anything. Yeah. Um, when I would practice from then on, I would think, 
you know, this is not a cure-all. I would think this is not, um, you know, this yoga and meditation is one, is one aspect, but um, knowing that his, his genetics and maybe his upbringing and, you know, combination of nature and nurture helped to grant him this disease. Um, it made it very real that that could happen to me. And I don't think I've ever been as, as uh, scared of anything. Mm. And I don't think I've ever been as relieved in, <laughs> in going through the, the process of therapy too. Under, to understand a little bit about it and to believe and have faith that that's that that's not my future mm. um, and that's through years of you know years of work and and wanting to explore how um how that may have been detrimental to, to believe that, you know, again, it's not a unique uh, concept, but our failure as a, as a community to understand mental health. Truth and, and the actual training against it in the early years. I don't know if that still goes on. I know that there's a lot of teachers that are, you know, mental health therapists now, but in the early years, there was actually training against getting therapists and that yoga was the only way and do this meditation. And so it's like growing up in this, again, I just want to hold you in that, in that this isn't a personal ethos that you gleamed as your unique survival technique, although I know how much it can feel that way because the unwinding that I've done that I thought was uniquely my soul's work and then this community exposure has made me realize, wow, this is complex PTSD and we collectively have it. And to start naming that in ourselves and to unwinding, wow, I thought this sensation was enlightenment and it's actually just deprivation. It's not enlightenment at all. And to be trained in the opposite is actually a psychosomatic disconnect that through therapy, through understanding mental health, we can start to reconnect these parts and learn that, wow, yeah, things that we've been trained, overly trained, they don't have to produce these sensations. We can feel, we can be safe to feel all these feelings and not be trained out of our humanity. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that is definitely one of the most important things to me is um, yeah, I think to emphasize um, that that is the discussion around mental health can't be uh, ignored, right? Right. 
this feels like it might be a jump of topics, but in one of those books I'm learning about trauma, and it's called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menicum. And he talks a lot about the nervous system. And in my unwinding from overtraining in Kundalini yoga as well, I've had to learn things about my nervous system that I thought one thing because of my training. And then I've learned, oh, wow, that's actually not the complete truth. That's only like a slice of truth. And I've had to come back. And so in that book, he talks about how um, when we're learning our nervous system and we're feeling certain kind of volatile, rageful, angry emotions, that's the time when we want to charge the energy outward, do martial arts, do a movement, something that's dispersing the energy, go for a run, but not to sit and do meditation because that's when you're turning the energy inward. And that's a part of, I think, this great unwind is realizing, wow, when we feel really harsh, volatile emotions, whether it's grief or anger or rage or whatever's coming up, that we have such unconscious default training to turn that inward and sit with it because it wasn't safe to, to bring it anywhere. And that's a really hard unwind. And I'm just, I want to say that out loud because I've had to physically unwind that out of my nervous system through therapy and support. And it was almost opposite of what I was trained to do in my Kundalini yoga training. Yeah, I hear you. Um, and like, I, I mean, that relates to the part about feeling like I, I could express myself through physical things like playing tabla or doing martial arts or the thing that I learned when I was seven years old and I had a caretaker in my first year in India, she taught us break dancing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I definitely felt that when I would be, doesn't matter how good you are, but when I would be dancing and feeling like I felt parts of my body lighting up in ways that it doesn't matter how you define it. If you say Kundalini or if you say, you know, you're just feeling it or you're vibing with it, you're, you're expressing things in your body that need to come out and they can be in any infinite form of ways. Mm -hmm. And the myriad of expressions and how they will change depending on what's needing to come out at any given time, that there's not one right form or function of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like when you came back to the U.S., you started processing and having a lot of kind of questions, you know, you're, you're serving to court, you're, you're a woman. And, um, and then, so some years later, obviously then all this, so, so let us know what happened in that time. And then how did you feel with all this information coming out with the Premka book? Like, give us a, a, a light into the transition into the present. Um, I don't think I really started thinking about all of this until, yeah, 10 months ago. Um, as much as the, the transition to coming from MPA and, and living in the States might have, might have given me pause to reflect on my life philosophy, um, I still had this part in my brain, which I'm ashamed to admit, was it doesn't matter what Harbhajan did, my practice and my experience are, are solid and nothing will ever change that. Mm. Um, wow. I want to just pause and say, that's a common thought. That's yeah. In, in that one. Yeah. And 
I didn't want to start this process. It wasn't something that was a choice or I was like, okay, now I'm going to start feeling like everything in my life is questionable. <laughs> it's not my choice. You have to decide you wanted that one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I see such value in it, even though it's painful. I see the, again, the ways that it's enabling me to explore with my own language, through my own body, to to say the things that I'm actually feeling, and not um, and not push that on others, but just say this is how I feel. Mm. Tremendous. Um, so I I mean, going back to when I was baptized, similar to to Dudham and to Sikhism, I I remember there was even talk of of all of the abuse of um, Harbhajan sleeping with his secretaries. And I said that to Dudham the day I was, I was baptized. I said, you know, maybe it's true. I, I agreed that like, yeah, maybe he did sleep with them. And maybe, you know, in my mind, it's a consensual relationship, which I, you know, hadn't even explored the possibility of it not being consensual. I'm 17. And um, I say, maybe it's true, but that doesn't change how I feel about me practicing my practice or my, you know, sticking to these things that I, that I hold so dear. Um, and I also relate it to, as all of these stories started coming out, I had this pendulum held up here for so long and everything started to come out, you know, of, I, I started to realize like, okay, this was not consensual and it was happening and it was abusive and it was, um, not in line with what I thought I was practicing, not in line with what I thought he was teaching. And this pendulum started to swing and I have this need in me to not let it swing <laughs> to the other side. And that's painful to, uh, because there's a fear that if it swings to the other side, I'll be what I have judged in the past of, you know, Oh, this person lost their faith. They lost their practice. They dropped, you know, their, their strength. Cause we, how many times in our DOS did we say, you know, did I say personally, please bless seriously. So I don't know his whole title. He is my most humble servant and feel it and believe it. And, um, you know, living by that life philosophy that if you doubt that you're just in the grip of some poisonous, um, yeah, that's not, that's not going to go away in another 10 months. It's going to, I think it's going to be years. You mean for this to start, um, being dissolving inside of you to be, yeah, yeah I believe it's dissolving inside of me, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's a large structure and, and deconstructing it, um, because my choice is not to just explode it, which some people is just blow it up and start from zero. Um, I feel like my choice is to deconstruct it with, with a consciousness that, that I can see the parts that are coming out one by one. <laughs> mm. Mm. That may change. Absolutely. And any way that it happens for you is your right way. I just find it so beautiful that you're, you're facing that 
with like eyes wide open, heart wide open and saying, wow, the whole structure of my view of life is called into question. And what, who am I beyond this veil? And rather than jump that cliff, it's like, I'm going to walk steadily and I'm going to feel the ground beneath me. Yeah. Mm. I think you've just brought up some really, really important points in your shared story and your shared experience that I can feel that you're actually like in real time processing. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> it's just so not easy to share ourselves in these vulnerable spaces where we don't have it all figured out. We just know that what was no longer exists and what's becoming is is the question but i'm you know i'm here i'm present with that process and it sounds like you just you're so right there with that and it's 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 courageous and i i really invite listeners to hear this because to me this is what it means to have conversations about our experiences it's not about analyzing and figuring it all out it's just saying well i i i see a hole poked here here's another hole poked and things are dissolving and and i don't want it all to disintegrate i want to i want to have a sense of myself along the way yeah i appreciate that so much i appreciate you I appreciate our community so much, you know, um, having been born and raised in the community, you know, I was born in 1977. You're born in 1988, you said? 1988. And it's so funny because I feel like we know each other, but we don't know how we know each other, you know, and that this is just the case in like what it means to grow up like us. And if you don't grow up in our community, you don't feel that level of depth of like what it means to have like this level of brotherhood and sisterhood, you know, in such a, in, in such a unique depth of bonds. But what I'm reminded is that we really know each other, like through children's camps or like your mom took care of me when I was a baby or my mom took care, you know, it's like, we really actually have a level of intimacy from childhood through and we don't really even understand or know it fully. Like, of course, we know who we're friends with, but I just mean like fully. Right. <laughs> yeah, I can meet up with somebody who went to school in GNFC and immediately we'll talk for four hours without a beat. And um, we didn't know each other before that, but it just becomes this. Um, we know the same people and we know the same experience and we we have an ability to connect on a level that isn't tangible yeah um but i do want to hear about your story of <laughs> <laughs> all right well i, I was going to tell us but i was going to go there so what i was going to share was that even though we don't know each other um i heard you talk on some zoom call and i realized that i knew your mom and i was 16 it was my last solstice and um uh I was a guide at children's camp to do like a, as a pay for, to be able to do one day of tantric. And so I'm a guide at the children's camp and my left hip goes out and I can't walk. 
And so I'm debilitated. I'm laying in my tent and they're going to like take me down to like call the chiropractic or whatever to see if he can get me walking. And your mom comes into my tent because she's some sort of healer who's been sent to my tent to help me. Anyway, it was just really interesting because she's some sort of energy healer. And she says to me, are you sexually active? And I was like, no. And, and she was like, well, um, you have so much sexual energy in your body, you're going to need to learn how to move that energy around in you, or it's going to cause a lot of debilitating problems later in your life. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, thanks. You know? And so she's like, I suggest you do hip circles. And so she shows me like this slow kind of feminine hip circle thing. And of course, you know, we do some of these things in Kundalini yoga, but my sense of Kundalini yoga in my body was the very active, masculine, disciplined, you know, it was like very sharp. It was penetrative. And that was just a very different feeling. Anyway, her, her little thing has stayed with me for my whole life because this theme has really been a thing, you know, for my body and my healing of balancing my own masculine and feminine energy. And I found it quite odd that at that time there would be somebody that would talk about sexual energy at all, because I didn't find that many people were that open about it. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I was just talking to my mom and um, relaying to her that I feel like she's always been a bit of a rebel. <laughs> she, was, she was taking, again, like I think I got my, my love of martial arts from her. When I was really young, she was taking Kung Fu and Karate and- She um, was urban different early on. Yeah, exactly. You know her. You do know her. Yeah. <laughs> and I, she stood out to me. Again, she had just a real different vibe. And that hip circle thing, like it wasn't until like 2015 that it came back around for me of really that same thing. I realized, wow, I've been dealing with this balance, my masculine and feminine energy in my body. And she was one of the first people to point that out. And it's a lifelong theme. It's a part of what I teach on in terms of like really using, getting in touch with our sexuality and our emotional body as a way to fuel and heal, heal our trauma, you know, not cut these things off because they're, they are the life force that juices our system. Exactly. Thank your mama. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I'm so grateful for our community for this reason, for lots of reasons, but mm -hmm. one of them is this, you know, is the, the connections that will never leave us because they're a part of our, our experience. Yeah. On that note, I want to um, share your song. Do you want to um, give us an intro to it or should we just play um, you can just play it. All right. We're going to share um, Argabin's intro song here before we end this episode. So let's see.
Thank you so much for that beautiful music, that beautiful share today. I'm in ending, Hargamond. Do you want to give us a lens into where from here, um, even your perspective on having spent so much time in India and having worked at Midipiti, do you feel like, obviously that's a, a contentious issue right now, do you feel like it's a school that should keep going forward? Do you feel like the experience, the cultural and experience makes up for the academics that it doesn't have? What's your lens on that for now? I would say, I don't think it should continue as it is. Um, there's nothing that can make up for it. That's why it's called Mary period. It's supposed to be both. <laughs> there's nothing that can make up for her. And I don't, I haven't been there in, in 10 years. Um, when I, when I hear, and I shared this with, with people on, on both sides of the aisle, when I hear attacks on it, I feel defensive of it. And when I hear um, pushback against the attacks on it, I feel the opposite. <laughs> mm. So, I mean, from just how I've seen it, and again, not being involved in 10 years, but knowing what I know, a minimum of, of a, accreditation or, or training, you know, I see value in it, but I don't see value in it at the expense of of anything. If it's if it's sacrificing anything to give that value, I don't see that. Um, so I I think I I want to participate in the in the discussion about it for the sake of lending my voice of you know mental health and understanding more about science and and understanding that while it, while it may put yoga and spirituality at the forefront of the education, that is just one aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's super important. And I think that the context of, that we don't have the, the current day perspective, and yet as long as all the pieces of the puzzle that really makes it a formative school and putting mental health at the forefront, the children's needs, the academics, all the aspects of it, and that these conversations can be had transparently. And that's what's really important because as a community, I think it's such a valuable aspect of so many of, of the children's experience in the dharmas to have an international world and yeah. to count this aspect of our life. People don't get it. They don't get how much this is. An, a, 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 this is what makes us us is this worldly aspect, this and I didn't go to school in India and I still got this worldly aspect because it's what happens when you grow up, when your brothers and sisters go to school when they're five, six, seven. Absolutely. It's the thing, right? And, and there's value and beautiful experiences that we draw, but it doesn't take away from the traumatic experience that can coexist with it. Yeah. And we have to support all of that if our children are going to keep going. Yeah. Yep. I have a love that I don't think will go away that that um that I want to fight to preserve yeah the richness the sweetness of your heart Hargobin where it's like oh when I hear this side I'm like I want to defend when I hear this side it's like oh and it's yeah. both and like standing in both 
Yeah, I think the word that I'm I'm going to live with for the foreseeable future is ambivalence. <laughs> mm, tell us about ambivalence. I'm I mean ever since yeah, 10 months ago the process started. It's it's the essence of cognitive dissonance where you can where you can see both and hold these conflicting um and that's a struggle for me is holding, you know, each person's experience is theirs and mine cannot discount somebody else's. Um, but it's, it's impossible to fully hold somebody else's when mine is so strong in me. But I'm not going to give up on that. You know, I'm not going to say this person's isn't important because mine is all there is. Um, mm. So I feel ambivalent in that I, I, I have lived so strongly up till 10 months ago in this strong mindset, strong. And I have um, also come to see the, the abuses in the light that I have seen them now and the, the corruption and the disgrace, the, the hypocrisy and all the negative sides of them, the way I see them now and I don't, um, I don't see one as better or more right. <laughs> um, I just see it as they're, they're both important and I need to move forward with what I have now and understand that the people who are not moving forward with me are, are equally um, valid. <laughs> You mean in their choice to stay wherever they're at? Yeah. Well, they're equally valid because that's who they are, right? But in, in terms of um, speaking speaking truth, we have to let people be wherever they're at in whatever stage they're at. I can, I can be with you there. I feel like as a community, though, we've gotten, we've perfected looking at one aspect and have it and are very uncomfortable dealing with uncomfortable emotions. Yeah. And we're learning to hold each other here. We're learning how to be like, wow, I don't know how to hold you in disagreement, but I think I still love you. Yeah. To have public disagreement, right. Or public discord. Yeah. The thing that I don't want to do is agree to disagree because that's. <laughs> <laughs> I find that terrible. It feels like it's a non-dealing with of something. Exactly. I think that, I mean, Dunham and I bond so much over when we talk to our, each of our dads, respectively, the, uh, the difficulty in engaging them and, um, you know, what, what engaging someone who disagrees with you so hard means. Is it for you so that you can feel better about yourself? Is it for them so that they can see the way that you want them to see? Or, um, you know, how does that process go and how active do you need to be with somebody who, who you definitely love and want to continue a relationship with? But it's a fundamental disagreement. So that leads me to ask, what were your parents' response to because that I have no idea. Right, my mom is the easiest person to talk to about it. I, I love talking to her about it. Um, she's she's on the same page as me, and I. That's that's that you know you, you can tell where I'm at from this whole discussion, and my dad is one of the hardest people to talk to about it. 
because I think there's that he he just he keeps Yogi he keeps Harbhajan on his altar and he he keeps that you know basically where I was when I left the school in India of like you just keep going and that consistency and you know mm. not dealing with it or you know dealing with it in a way that I don't relate to mm. so would you say he's a denier he actually like denies all that and then your mom and are they together still yes no okay I was like wow how do they do that <laughs> I know I'm I mean that's the thing I've realized there are probably many couples who who are living together who disagree and that's that's its own <laughs> fight right who right Whew. Yeah, I'm blown away by hearing the complexity of the families, the various families. And you're like, wow. Yeah. We have it all so different, but the similar, you know. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've, Thank I've enjoyed you. this. I Thank mean, I haven't you. enjoyed it, but I've there's so much value in it. <laughs> well, we've enjoyed you and you're you're allowing us into your your vulnerability in these areas you're in real time grappling with is such an honor. You know, it's very humbling to, to witness you here and, and thank you for coming here and, and in the midst of the process. Yeah. Yeah. It it makes a difference. So anything else you'd like to say to my listeners before we go? No, I'm, I'm uh, pretty happy with everything I've said. (laughs) Well, Well, it's been a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you all for tuning in. This is the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. Um, Be sure to like us on all platforms and review and rate us. Spread the word, share it, and don't forget your story matters. So if you'd like to share your story, please join us in a future episode.